UX Podcast is funded by James and myself, together with any contributions we can get from you, our listeners. You can contribute any amount you like, whenever you like, by visiting uxpodcast.com slash support. UX Podcast Episode 224. Hello, I'm Pat Axbom. And I'm James Royal Lawson. And this is UX Podcast. We're in Stockholm, Sweden, and you're listening in 190 countries from Malta to 24 out of the 27 states in Brazil. <laughs> now, you wrote that, <laughs> James. Yeah, I, 24 I just, out of 27. And I, was just, I was just fascinated by the fact there was just so many listeners in Brazil and so diverse across Brazil because, you know, mm. it's a big country. So, but if in case you're wondering, oh, the yes. three Brazilian states that we don't know if we do have listeners in are the three smallest. And I see you've written here, Acre, Amapa and Roraima. I'm so I glad have no you idea if I pronounced that right, but... I'm so glad you tried and not me. If you know anybody in those states, of course, let them know that they should listen to UX Podcast. Gene Lidgap, who joins us today, is an American strategist and professor of business administration at the Darden School of the University of Virginia. She's particularly known for her work on strategic thinking, design thinking, and organic growth. She has consulted and written on topics surrounding strategic thinking for over 30 years, including the award-winning book, Designing for Growth, a Design Thinking Toolkit for Managers. And Jean recently gave a talk here in Stockholm, organized by Daresay, on the business value of design. And we sat down with her after her talk, and uh, we had a discussion about why design thinking matters, why it's okay to not be perfect, the nuances of value creation, and overcoming tension and fears in the organization. So, Jane, the business business value design. Now, my first question is, what what created value before design? That's an interesting question. Well, don't you think if, if we have the business value design, if that's what we're seeing now, mm. that just struck me, where were we before? Well, I think the term design is so ubiquitous. Mm. At some level, you can't be a business and not have designed. I mean, you may have designed rather haphazardly and you may not have designed in a very customer-centric way, but if you've produced a product or service, there has been some level of design involved. I think what we're talking about, uh, particularly when we begin to talk about design thinking, Mm. is a particular methodological approach to thinking about things that we perhaps weren't as fully aware of, or something like customer centricity, we were fully aware of it, we just didn't have very sophisticated tools to do it with. Mm. Um, And so I think in part, it's bringing a much more conscious and methodologically complex view to what all organizations, what all of us as human beings are, which is we are designers. We're creative and mm. designers, and it's yes. always been there. So yes. it's an age of consciousness we're entering. I think it is. And again, I think we could, you know, uh, most things design-related in the U.S., we, we alternately praise and fault Apple for, because I think they, they were what brought in the U.S. consciousness to this idea that there was competitive advantage attached to being very conscious about the design that you gave your Mm -hmm. customer. 
Um, they also gave us this notion that design meant a sleek piece of hardware, which I think we've, we've been fighting against ever since. But it did raise the consciousness of it and the recognition that it wasn't, as they would call design, you know, the last way station that made something pretty on its way to the customer, but that in fact, it kind of was an integral aspect of any product or service. Nice. I like that because that dovetails nicely with, with a, when you're thinking about how mature you are, uh, unconsciously incompetent, consciously <laughs> yes. incompetent. Yeah, all, all, that's those steps. So what phase are we in now? We're sort of like consciously incompetent because not everyone gets it, apparently. Yes, yes. <laughs> and also, I mean, psychologically as human beings, uh, uh, we are so uh, unconscious mm. for the most part. I mean, a lot of the power of design is to make us realize that the rest of the world doesn't want exactly what we want. Mm. And uh, particularly in areas like healthcare, mm. where you've had the design of delivery systems pretty much dominated by a small set of experts who were the caregivers, um, there's just huge opportunity for improvements in the experience by doing nothing more than recognizing the basic notion that uh, other people have needs and wants that are different than ours, and perhaps we should listen to them. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. And that is like one of the really core important parts about design thinking that you were talking about, getting to the like deep core of people's needs. Well, maybe that's mm. a good point. Mm. We, we, we um, mm. in, in our industry, there's always so much talk about definitions. Yeah. <laughs> so, Jane, what's, what's your definition mm. of design thinking? So my definition of design thinking is pretty straightforward. It's that it is a problem-solving approach which has some unique characteristics relative to the typical problem-solving approaches that we've had in business. And I, I, have, I try and avoid this idea of design thinking as a religion, <laughs> that it is something that, that basically supplants everything else we ever do and have done and that every project should be a design thinking project in an organization. Mm -hmm. In fact, design thinking is just one methodology among many. And for most of the activities of most organizations, the methodologies we've already got actually work quite well. But design thinking is optimized for a set of conditions that, that our other uh, decision-making approaches generally have not been optimized for. And that is particularly around uncertainty and diversity of stakeholders and a changing environment, just a set of conditions that analytical methodologies that are basically based on extrapolating from the past into the future are particularly bad at. And so design for this one category of problems, human-centered, fairly uncertain, we don't feel comfortable extrapolating the past. Um, design thinking is almost unique in the management toolkit. Mm -hmm. and, yeah, and I guess the, the, the traditional management toolkit is going to be built up with tools that we used for production in, in more factory-like environments, I, I guess. Yes. It's, it's also mostly been a set of tools for testing. Yeah. So if you look at a, a lot of our economic tools, they start with an idea, and then you can get fairly sophisticated about different approaches to testing it. Mm. But we have very few tools that are around creating ideas. And that's one of the exciting things 
about design thinking to me. It is a toolkit not only for testing, and I do think it has some very unique properties even in relation to testing, but it is almost completely unique in that it's giving us a set of, of deeper tools that allow us to generate ideas and yet still be data-driven. And I think that's what appeals to me as a business person about design thinking. We have this notion that creativity and innovation are just thing, ideas come to people in their shower, <laughs> right? That, mm. that there is no way mm. to help people get better at it uh, and that you know some of us are born with it and the rest of us just have to wait for the people who are born with it to come up with the idea so we mm. can go test them. Mm. But I think what design thinking allows us to do is say, we can create ideas with data rooted in the customer's needs. And so I think that piece of it, um, for those of us who grew up in a quantitative world, who believe in data, who like data, and who think that if you don't have data, people just design for themselves, mm. the fact that we still get to be data-driven, but with a very different kind of deeper, more ethnographic data than we've traditionally mm. had to work with as business mm. people, I think is, is, is very exciting. So I love that you're saying this because we're not talking about qualitative data. Uh, what I know that people struggle with in the industry is actually getting the time to do exactly what you're saying. Is it then not design thinking if you're not doing the real work of going out there, doing observational studies, understanding the people you're designing for? Is it then not design thinking? It wouldn't be design thinking mm. under my yeah. definition of it. Uh, yeah. For me, a full design mm. thinking process has um, three components. The first is an exploration of existing customer needs. Now, I interestingly, that doesn't always have to be face-to-face -face ethnographic interviewing. Um, for instance, one of our most interesting stories uh, of a healthcare organization, they basically created the customer journey yeah. out of data that they had in their records because it was happening in the emergency room with people who are psychologically distressed that you couldn't interview. Um, uh, yet, they were basically using data to understand the context of the problem and the needs of the people involved. Right? They were then generating ideas. And one of my firm beliefs is that it's essential to do design thinking that you generate multiple ideas. Mm. As business people, we think it looks so much more efficient to just take the first idea we fall in love with and stop there. Uh, so you have to impress upon people we are creating a portfolio of ideas, not a single idea. Then we are moving that portfolio into testing, and the people who get to make the decisions are the customers that we're serving. And so for me, if you skip the front end, the exploration of the existing context, um, or if you move one idea into it, or if you don't go to customers with prototypes for testing, then it doesn't get to be called design thinking. Mm. Because the next question then, follow up, of course, always is, how do you know when you're done? How do I know when I know enough to go on? Yeah, and of course you're <laughs> never done. Yeah. There's always more to know. Yeah. This is, and, and again, a lot of mm. things I think mm. that frustrate people about design mm. thinking are in fact just things that frustrate us mm. in organizations whenever we do research, mm. right? Um, and this question of when am I done, 
uh, I always loved the Frank Gehry discussion of that. A lot of my initial inspiration for design thinking came from studying architects like Frank Gehry and trying to understand their process. Uh, because when I started on this about 20 years ago, I had never heard of design thinking. I'm, I mean, IDEO was around, but mm. they weren't being discussed in the US. Mm. So for me, design was a metaphor not mm -hmm. a toolkit, mm -hmm. and it was a metaphor that I largely understood through the work and the writings of architects. And, and, and Frank Geary basically said, you know, at some point someone takes away your pencil. You're out of money, mm -hmm. you're out of time, yeah. yes. you call it quits, you're not satisfied, mm -hmm. it could always be better, and mm -hmm. you move on. Now, in my old life as a strategy consultant, it was exactly the same way. You can always justify getting more data. And one of the advantages of design thinking is it says, stop looking for the perfect data to prove what you think is true. Take it raw and bring it to the real people you're trying to serve, mm -hmm. and they'll give you data. Mm -hmm. And I think that action orientation, that design doing as much as design thinking, mm -hmm. is, uh, is really critical, that it's okay to move on when it's not perfect. Yeah. Yeah, I think you, 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 you've mentioned um, how um, you can't use past data to create a, a future. Uh, and I really like the um, when you talk about the, um, you c if you take on, take on board all the constraints of today, you, you constrain yourself in a way that you can't create a future that's any different, really, from what you've already got. Exactly. Most of us can't, anyhow. This yeah. is a conversation I have with designers a lot. Designers thrive on constraints. Uh, <laughs> designers will say, if you give me a problem without constraints, I mean, I, I can't work with it. I mean, the more constraints, the better, the, because they'll stimulate my creativity. Mm. That is absolutely not true for about 99% of the world's population. Constraints don't stimulate our creativity. They shut us down, right? We see constraints as, as red lights that say, oh, well, that's not going to work. Just go back to the way that you've always been doing mm. it, right? So particularly people who grew up in large organizations. And of course, I have spent the majority of my career with what I call the dinosaurs, mm. right? <laughs> those are the people who hire consultants and those are the people who send their people to be yeah. educated at MBA programs, yeah. right? Mm. Organizations mm. that know they have to change, but that are large and resistant to change and bureaucratic and hierarchical and all of the things we know are anathema to innovation. Um, and, and in those organizations, People are tremendously afraid of making mistakes. I mean, it's probably one of the dominant cultural aspects of these organizations. And again, it, th that isn't entirely the organization's fault. It is kind of a deeply rooted human quality that most of us are. We don't view life as a journey of learning, as, uh, as Carol Dweck describes uh, uh, the growth mindset. We view life as a test, and we're trying not to look stupid, <laughs> right? And within that context, if you don't lift constraints, you won't get much creative thinking. Mm. And if you don't give people a lot of structure, um, I think another critique of design thinking from designers is that you're, you're taking all the magic out of design. I mean, you have these steps. I mean, I have a ridiculous 15-step model. Um, and But the reason I have it is 10 years of teaching managers to do this stuff, I kept adding steps because if you left them on their own, they went off course or they gave up um, or they suboptimized or they did something that interfered with their ability to have a positive outcome. Uh, but that structure is really critical. One of the, uh, the, the leads of design at Intuit once said to me, uh, it's like playing jazz. 
we are all about improvisation, but you can't improvise until you've learned your chords. Mm -hmm. So the structured process is where people learn their chords. And once they've learned those chords, they're on their own. They can improvise. They can pick mm -hmm. whatever piece of the process works for them. They can move at whatever pace they want, mm -hmm. however they want. But while you're mm -hmm. teaching people their chords, I think that um, structure equals safety. And mm -hmm. safety is critical. Mm -hmm. Yeah. I th I think this is this is something I think a lot of us will struggle with all the time, where you knowing when to flip from being innovative, working with innovation, and when you're actually just improving. Isn't it? We, you know, we, we, many of us work on projects where we we need to improve this thing. We mm -hmm. we don't have the the moment, the opportunity, the, the mandate, maybe even to to be completely innovative. That yes. that maybe comes at another point. So, but they overlap and they intertwine. Mm. So when do we switch track? Yeah. And how do we switch track? You know, and I have a very simple answer for that. I think most of the ways in which we parse innovation are not helpful. I mean, it, they may be true. There's disruptive innovation. There's technology innovation. There's science human-centered innovation. But basically, all innovation, I believe, is about improving the value creation that you have for people. Now, sometimes you can improve that value creation dramatically. You know, you can invent penicillin. Um, and other times you can, you can produce it more marginally. But uh, innovation, it, it, it really doesn't matter what you call it. Most of the time, the level of radicalness of your ability to innovate is a function of where you sit in an organization. Yeah. If yeah. I'm face-to-face -face with a customer behind a desk, I have very powerful local intelligence, but probably very localized decision-making authority as well. Mm. Right? At a senior level, I can be a strategist. I can do disruption. I can invest in research and development. You know, As a research scientist, I can do blue sky research and all of that. Um, it d doesn't really help to, to talk about disruptive innovation to the person who's on the front line. I, it's kind of in, it's like the old Covey thing, you know. I mean, I, I still think you can go back to Stephen Covey for so many basic truths about life, and he talks about our sphere of influence and our sphere of control. Yeah, yeah. In management, in general, we spend way too much time haranguing people about things that are not even in their sphere of influence, much less their sphere of control, and we divert their attention from focusing on areas where they could make a difference. And so for me, innovation is not about novelty. It's not about disruption. It's about creating better value for the people we serve, whether it's the person right in front of us or whether it's an entire industry, right, depending upon the nature. And that's the heart of it. Um, Sometimes you also can't tell how radical value creation is. Uh, one of my favorite examples here is wheels on luggage. Now, mm -hmm. I mean, m most of our audience is probably too young to remember when we were actually stupid enough to haul suitcases <laughs> around <laughs> that had no wheels yeah. on them, right? In retrospect, it seems so obvious. And I mean, wheels have been around for how many millennia? <laughs> Sacks have been around forever. You wouldn't think there'd be a whole lot of value creation in combining those two. But imagine, given the amount of time we spend furiously running through airports these days, mm. what life would be like without those wheels on our luggage. Mm. And so I think it's easy to denigrate something by calling it, oh, that's just incremental. Mm. But the reality of it is, for the person you're serving, it matters. And it may well be significant, even if it's not significant to the tune of millions of dollars and, and organization-wide influence. Yeah. 
And I, I, I love this because at the same time, I loved what you were saying before today about design thinking being inclusive by itself because you bring in people from all over the organization. So even the receptionist is a person you would bring into the process, preferably. And thinking about that, I, I'm, I can't verify this. All, all listeners, listeners will have to verify this. But I heard the story behind that wheels on, on yes. luggage is a stewardess came up with that idea. So that it's actually the people with the greatest need. When you listen to them, that's when the ideas come. Yeah, and mm. I think it's part of our... It's hierarchy mm. and elitism and who mm. we privilege to mm. have ideas that we listen to. Um, and the reality of it is because everyone brings something different from their perspective, mm. often people with what uh, we would call the beginner's mind, right, uh, bring a lot of value. I mean, one of my favorite stories comes from the U.S. Department of Defense. So this is, you know, big deal, very serious kind of people. Group of people using design thinking wanting to have an idea generation session. They send out the email to everyone in the department. And when the session starts, the administrative assistant in the department walks in and sits down because she was on the email. Mm. And um, as the person who was facilitating the session describes it, he said, I paused for a moment and wondered if I should tell her that she didn't really need to come. And then he thought, well, I think that would be rude. So they went on with the session. As part of the session, a lot of design thinking is trying to move anonymity into the process. So you're writing on post-it notes. Um, you're putting things up. So ideas aren't owned by particular people, um, especially in a hierarchy where mm. we've got military involved, like, like mm. the Department of Defense. You won't get anything from lower-level people unless you give them anonymity. Anyhow, at the end of the session, they picked one idea to move into the next stage of development. And as they were leaving the session, the facilitator said to the admin, so what did you think of the session? And she said, well, I thought it was great, and I thought it was particularly cool that y'all picked my idea. <laughs> <laughs> and again, that is a true story yeah. and uh, an amazing story, right? Because uh, she wasn't even supposed to be there because she wouldn't know. She mm. couldn't contribute, right? And uh, so I think uh, the more inclusive we can be, within a structure that doesn't kind of collapse uh, with all of the diversity that we've introduced. Uh, it, it's just very powerful. And so for me, the conversation design thinking creates is actually its most significant part. Mm. It's a conversation that allows us to tap into the best of our diversity while still focusing on the person that we're trying to serve. Um, and I think that's something that we desperately need in today's world. How, how mm. do we step away from the ideologies mm. that drive us these days where we can't even communicate with each other across our differences? Mm -hmm. um, and step back and say, yes, all right, on one level, you may say black lives matter and I may say everybody's lives matter, but can't we both agree that there's something terribly dysfunctional that's happening in traffic stops mm. in the U.S. with young black men and can't we just try and figure out how we would improve that process mm. regardless of which ideology we ascribe to? That, to me, is the ultimate power in design thinking. Mm. Wow. Yeah, and we enable, yeah. So through, through increasing the sphere of influence people closer to the person we're trying to serve um, with whatever we're doing we're it's that that gives us design thinking that's that's what allows design thinking to grow in organizations well you know better choices come from better information and local intelligence 
is probably the most valuable kind of information in a world of change. In a world that's static, perhaps you can afford to process everything up the ladder and to have some senior leader um, uh, looking at reports and based on that making decisions. But in a fast-changing world, the data about what's really happening is happening at the front lines of the organizations. If there is no way to pull that data into your decision-making process, you're going to waste money. Mm. You're going to miss opportunities. I mean, you're going to do a whole lot of things that we don't want to do in business because of the loss of that local intelligence. Mm. If no one talked to the stewardess, they would have taken a lot longer to realize that wheels wheels are needed on the Mm. suitcases. Mm. This is also a core part of where it can go wrong because value creation you talked about, but it's value creation, of course, for the user or the person out there that you're designing for but of course there's also value creation at what you were talking about today value creation for the business yes. and sometimes those two are in conflict you know they're mm-hmm. often in conflict mm-hmm. i mean the fastest way to make money mm-hmm. is to raise your price but there's mm-hmm. very few mm-hmm. customers who get enthusiastic about that mm-hmm. right so the the, the tension mm-hmm. between uh business success and customer satisfaction has always been there it's like the tension between long term and short term mm-hmm you can never really resolve it. You manage it on a day-to-day basis. Mm. Uh, One of the things that I personally believe in design thinking is critical, and and this is not universally the way everyone does it, but I ask people to completely hold at bay the question of organizational needs. And we factor that in and treat it as a constraint during idea testing, Mm. right? Otherwise, basically, People create out of the existing capability base. I mean, when you say, let's, you know, what's the most effective form of innovation for an organization? Well, it's to sell more of what we're already selling to somebody new, mm. probably, mm. right? It's not to innovate because actually creating new stuff is expensive and risky. Mm. Um, so we have to lower the cost of creating new stuff if we want people to do anything more uh, explicit than just churn out the stuff that they've got. Uh, but how do you reduce that risk? The more, the more thoroughly you know the customer and the more you engage them in the process, mm. the lower the risk and the less trade-off. So again, there's always going to be organizations that want to maximize profit in the short term, um, which means they're not going to really focus on investing in developing that next level of thinking about the customer's future needs. They're going to make today as as profitable as possible. But I think for organizations that take a more strategic focus, who in the long term want to be profitable, the surest route to profitability is to deeply understand your customer and to deliver better value to them than the people that you compete against. And so holding your own needs at bay while you really focus on if anything were possible, what would we create for them? And then you use some of your creativity in service, not to the idea, but in service of how you execute the idea. How do we find partners if we don't have that capability base? Uh, Opens up whole new vistas. And again, I think another focus of today's world is we're not trying to do it all as an organization. The old days of vertical integration where a given organization did everything are gone. It's increasingly about collaboration. It's about partnerships. And that collaboration, though, has to be in service to value creation for customers. Otherwise, how do we know who to partner with and around mm. what? 
right? Once we understand the customer need and we can analyze the gap in our own capability set, then we know what the qualities are that we need to look for in a partner. For me, that's perfect. It's a great ending. <laughs> Thank you for sitting down with us, Gene. Oh, you're welcome. It has been my pleasure. I don't know if I count as a listener of the show. I mean, I do listen. Well, you did listen to the oh, show. I, I, yeah, <laughs> I, I do sometimes listen. Um, <laughs> but um, I, I looked up um, the story of the suitcase and the and the wheels. Excellent. Um, and it was actually the rollerboard, as it's called, was invented in 1987 by Robert Plath, who was a airline a 747 pilot who liked who liked right. creating things. Um, but I think we we saw the idea of it comes comes from the the air hostess is, is I think he sold it to his crew and different crews, so it became mm. a sight, is that you'd see these um, um, airline hostesses or crews whizzing through airports yeah. with um, really nifty bags. So, so exactly. what you saw and then what rec people recognized was these people and then wanted it themselves. But, mm. but the story is excellent, it's, it's a really good example. It was, um, um, as far as I've, I've read, that there um, was an example that, well, the, the first person to put wheels on suitcases, that idea didn't really go down too well at all. And um, he was quoted as saying the, the, the problem he had in, in pitching it was that the people he was pitching to were predominantly um, men. And they regarded it as, as not macho, not being able to carry your own case. So it was a, sh it was a yeah. sign of visual strength that you could march to an airport with these you know, suitcases under your arm. Um, so they dismissed... That makes me think, makes me think how many... Excellent, good ideas have been blocked by men thinking that everyone is like them. I suspect quite a lot, but it, but it ties in <laughs> yeah. perfectly with, um, with Gene's point that you know, by, by being inclusive, by, by including the right people um, in your forums for innovation or decision making, mm. um, you make better decisions. And you know, yeah. the, the, the pilot who invented the rollerboard, um, he, he saw a problem. He just basically mm. went to his workshop, knocked up um, uh, uh, some wheels for a suitcase that, that worked better than previous ideas. And rather than kind of try and pitch it straight off, he started supplying these to the people he, around him exactly. that had the problem. And mm. you know, showed that it, he got data, he learned that it worked. Then he went on to pitch it and made it more, I suppose by that point, it was more um, communicable. It was more, it was an idea that he could communicate easier to other groups and yeah the demand was obvious now and there was a business case yeah. because people ob obviously wanted yeah it. yeah so so no it's um it's definitely um a good example and story i think it really speaks also t yeah to the that power of influence i mean who who could have invented that who would people have listened to uh but as you said actually he, he did make people listen by showing it being in use uh, and that's mm. how it became interesting to others gathered data it is Yes, I like the points that, that Gene made about uh, data-driven, because when you hear data-driven sometimes these days, you think, oh no, one of those people who obviously want to like look into analytics and just count the numbers and look at profits. And but he actually does talk about the ethnographic data, the data about human beings, and that is being data-driven. And I love love how she brings that qualitative data into it. Mm. Uh, 
also something that a lot of people seem to be missing. I mean, I mentioned at the beginning about this uh, conscious incompetence. I think it's very, very common that people are aware of what design thinking is and how it should be done, but a lot of the people practicing it do not have the mandate, do not have the influence to do it all the way. So a lot of that specific research around human beings and, and their needs and behaviors is not always done the way that people want to do it, which means that there's a risk here of actually making... Uh, part, the part of the risk is that if we do it wrong, people won't listen to people who want to do design thinking because it didn't work the last time. And the fact that we could actually be endangering the results by not doing the right research, the right amount Ooh, of research. That's interesting because it's actually mm. in in her talk, um, she brought up the um, the point of, of um, statistical significance and, and, and doing it right. And she said oh, okay. it doesn't matter. She says because we're using the data to inspire innovation. Oh, that's nice. Nice, but it's interesting how um, how you know, what you're saying now is quite true. That you can do, we can we can do research badly. Mm. But the argument here is that you've got to frame it right and say, well, no, this is this is just it's been this is inspiration. It isn't it isn't necessarily fact all the time. Yeah, because she also says you you she had a line make it raw and give it uh, to the people you want to serve, and they will give you more data. So it's really. It's about getting more data all the mm. time. But that also means that you actually need to have access to the people mm. that you want to try out your solution before you launch it. Because there's also a danger here. If you don't give it to the people uh, beforehand and you just throw it out there and test it, you have to be looking for the stuff that could also negatively impact people. Yeah, and also you... You, you need to be sure what you're looking well, at. Well, yeah, you've you got to be careful, I think, with that. If, mm. if you're using it for inspiration then you perhaps have already decided in what way you want to inspire. So you right. frame the results in order to achieve that inspiration. So, mm. so I, I agree with you. It's, um, it's, it can be risky. Yeah. But, but then she has another point to, to counter that, kind of. In, in the end, we talk about uh, organizational constraints. And so you can actually... Uh, in your work, uh, say that the organizational constraints are not there. We don't take them into consideration until we actually start solving. But to look at the problem and understand the possibilities, we need to look away from the organizational constraints. And I think that's really hard. I have a hard time with that in workshops, and I try to communicate with my clients is that they have a hard time not thinking about the constraints all the time. Yeah. In, our, in, in the talk itself, um, Jean um, went into a bit more detail of her um, definition of design thinking. She said it was design thinking was um, problem solving around three core beliefs. Um, one of them was empathy, human needs. Um, another was yeah. innovation, so exploring new possibilities. Um, and the third belief was um, around iteration, that the first solution is just a stepping stone to a better one. Um, and and that's, that that then dovetails into constraints and building constraints that you would. You would you would say well look we don't we don't have any constraints at first, and then you kind of yeah. maybe apply some of the constraints. And say, okay, without the constraints, this is where we want to, this is where we'd like to head. This is w what we mm. think would be the best or a great solution for a problem that our users face. Yeah. What constraints can we start to apply and see where how far we can get with that? What where's our first stepping stone? What what do the constraints allow us to do at first? But still, you've allowed yourself to open up um, and, and be creative. Yeah, that is interesting. 
Uh, I, I love also how she points out then that as a designer or whoever you are in the organization, your sphere of influence may not be that big. But that does not mean that you aren't working with value creation. You just have to assess what is a reasonable amount of value creation that I have the power to produce. So she's actually acknowledging that not everyone can invent and be in innovative in the sense that maybe we read about all the time. But you are always producing value by creating value for the people you're building yeah. for. And that's, this is lovely because you've got, mm -hmm. what you've got is you've got a, a double-fronted attack that uh, mm -hmm. what Gene's doing is saying, um, yeah, in, in your world, you can innovate you can innovate something and make incremental improvements and deliver value from wherever you are in the organization mm -hmm. as long as you understood where you are and where your influence goes. Yeah. Then at the other end of it, she's talking, she's teaching, she's spreading uh, knowledge about how managers should push decision-making as low as possible in their organizations, right. pushing it close to the source, yeah. build build capability um, locally. So, so she's yeah. she's encouraging you at the bottom to kind of like, oh, I say bottom. So you're encouraging one set of people to to make the best of the world they're in, at the same time as yeah. trying to expand the world and of the of the managers, the higher up levels, to go downwards. So, the idea being that eventually we'll all meet in the middle and we'll live in a design thinking world. Mm. I guess. Well, that's beautiful, isn't it? <laughs> Would be. <laughs> I thought it was really interesting how you had to correct yourself now because you always think about higher level yeah. and bottom level. Uh, and she was using the words uh, localized influence. Yes. Uh, as talking about, I like yeah, that. No, I did, you're right. I, I did mm. fall into the, oh, wait, I mean, there's so much, there is so much but language. This is language. Yeah. This is so hard. And also yeah. it's, it's, mm. decades of, um, it's decades of business, um, mm. um, uh, you know, business or management um, toolkits and things and all the, the language and the, the things that I've been taught around um, these kind of things has a certain way of framing things and you have a certain way of perceiving organizations. And and mm -hmm. design thinking has to break that down in order to um, to be its most successful. Exactly. So when thinking about what to listen next, uh, I noted you wrote something in our notes, and it was funny because she used in the interview the phrase "design doing" as well. Yeah. Uh, design thinking and design doing. And I th we actually have an episode I think that is called "Design Doing." Yeah, with Don Norman. Um, that we recorded a little while ago now, but it was a two-part interview with Don um, that we called Design Doing, um, yeah. where he um, he talks a fair bit about well, it's one thing design thinking, but let's get a, you know, can't we just get on with um, actually doing rather than just thinking? Um, mm. That's a very good point. Sir. And that goes to Gene's point about uh, you don't always have to feel like you're ready, but put it out there, that's when she says make it raw, put it out there and get the feedback and then you get the data. So it's by doing that you're then thinking. So you out there, they have to go, they dovetail, dovetail with uh, each other, really. Yeah, they'll always be improving. Anyway, so that was um, episodes 125 and 126 is our recommending right. listening for you to get into now. And if you'd like to contribute to funding UX Podcast, then please visit UX podcast.com slash support remember to keep moving see you on the other side
What did Winnie the Pooh say to his agent? I don't know, Pa. What did Winnie the Pooh say to his agent? Show me the honey! 